Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. Welcome. So, Robbie, how are you doing during this global pandemic that continues now for, what, the second month now in the U.S.? I mean, I, I know it's been going on for a lot longer than that, but the national quarantine and the self-isolation has been going on for over a month now, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially in California, Gavin Newsom, the governor, issued shelter-in-place orders, I believe, the weekend before St. Patrick's Day. So I want to say, let's see, was it the 15th of March? Um, I can't remember exactly, but yeah, it's been at least a month. Um, I've been home the whole time. Uh, I've only gone out a few times to go shopping. That was a little sketchy, the times that I've gone out to do that. So yeah, I mean, I'm definitely getting a little stir crazy being home this long, but it's not that much of a change for me. And uh, I guess I'm lucky in the sense that it's not that much of a change for me. I just am astonished by the way that things are being covered in the media. Um, how New York is already digging mass graves, which I guess we could talk about later. But I think the shock and the panic has already like worn off for me at this point. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, but it has. Maybe it's just because my body and my mind are exhausted by being that like anxious and worrying about things that much all the time. How are you doing? How things been for you? Same, kind of the same as you. I've kind of come to a place of acceptance and feeling like this is just normal now. It's the new normal. And just going out when I do go out for walks or when I do have to go to the grocery store, seeing everyone wear masks and stuff, it's just like a very dystopian kind of thing, but it it's become so normalized already just in the last month that it's just the way it is now. You know, it just it honestly just seems like this is just gonna be the way it is forever. Like when you hear Dr. Anthony Fauci saying that like we should never shake hands again. Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> this is just, you know, we should just like change the way that we've been living forever. But I agree with you in terms of like the mental acceptance and going through those stages of grief that we talked about in the last podcast and now just coming to a place of just kind of peace and acceptance with our situation. Of course, it's sad that I can't see my friends and family. It is a very difficult and trying time. And I am still, to a large extent, like obsessively researching COVID updates, but it just, there is just something kind of surreal about it where I'm not as anxious as I was. Yeah, it's norm it's the new normal almost. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's mm-hmm. part even of though the is. US is even though the US is stricken with the highest cases by far, now surpassed every country in the world, including Italy, of fatalities related to the coronavirus. So you know, we're number one, Robbie. We're number one. And if you look at the stats of who's mostly dying, a large percentage of them are minorities and, and low income brackets of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, just like we predicted, you know, just like everyone predicted it would be the people who are uh, the least privileged are getting the hardest hit by this. And it's really, really sad. And it also partly explains why the right wing media is acting like everything's fine now. And, uh, this was all exaggerated. It was all hype because they don't really know any of these people. You know, as soon as people start dying in their close circles, that's when they'll start having to be honest about it. There's such craven sycophants that maybe even then they would still just be towing the line, even while their own like friends and family are dying. 
And so who knows? But it's, yeah, it's just super sad. I think that's mostly True. what I'm feeling is just sadness over this situation mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. How long is it going to be before we can see relatives um, and friends? You know, what is that going to be right. like moving forward? Are you going to have to stress out about it every time you do now? Right. I think psychologically, it's just a very, very heavy thing uh, that we're all going to be still processing moving forward. Yeah, especially not knowing if it's going to be resurrected in the fall. How are we going to stave this off? Yeah. Come the next winter, you know, it's taxing. It's extremely taxing psychologically. And that's the thing is there's no end in sight, really. Even if we go over the hump and we pass the curve and we flatten it, I, I don't know what that means for the future. But um, before we get into the updates... I just wanted to give a plug for your latest series about the anti-China neocons. There's a two-part Media Roots radio series that Robbie put out as a solo series, and it is absolutely one of the best listens, if not the best listen, other than our Empire Files episode, which we'll talk about, on what's going on right now. What's going on right now that's completely underreported, a really fresh look on the hysterical whipping up of of war propaganda in the wake of COVID and the coronavirus being done by the neocons and the foreign policy establishment and the think tank circles in DC. I think that you were really on the cutting edge of this research. It's a long listen, but it is completely worth it. I recommend everyone just take a walk and just put it on, you know? You catalog some very well-known players like Steve Bannon, who people like to joke and say, oh, he can't elect his way out of a paper bag and he's so irrelevant. And the fact that he went on that Red Scare podcast shows like how how just stupid and, and non-influential he is. Absolutely the opposite. Oh, dude, dude, dude. I, Absolutely here, Let me just really quickly comment on the Red Scare thing. I think sure. that he went on that because he understands how much of an influential portal that is on sort of this anti-identity politics sector of the left. He's really Absolutely. smart. He's, a fuck, he's fucking brilliant. I think that he largely stepped down from the Trump administration so he could be like more behind the scenes of a, of a political operator yeah, still. Like Bill Crystal, like in the same way yep. he operated outside of the Bush administration as like a, yep. a force for them. So, totally. And that's why you need to listen to this podcast, because you realize how much influence he still has. It goes so far beyond what you think. People think that he's like this washed up, oh, ex-Breitbart, um, you know, columnist and like Trump advisor. No, not at all. He is he is deep rooted in the think tank circuit, essentially like co-founded this new committee on present danger, China, right? Which think is, tank? Well, yeah, which is one of the most surprising things that I probably learned while researching this podcast is he is one of the primary guys in the new right, you know, populist right circuit who is pushing anti-neocon sentiment. He'll even call out Bill Crystal a lot and call them neocons and stuff, just like Tucker. But yet mm-hmm. here he is. And I had no idea until like a month, you know, a month ago when I started researching this, that he's literally on the board of, and he's the, one of the co-founders of this think tank that has like multiple PNAC members in it. And some of the craziest ones, like Frank Gaffney, James Woolsey, William Bennett, these aren't just like, nor, you know, run of the mill PNAC people. They're like really, really, especially crazy ones, especially Frank Gaffney and Woolsey. 
Um, the previous iterations of this Committee on the Present Danger China, uh, during the Reagan administration, for example, trying to stop detente with the Soviet Union, they were actually behind lobbying the CIA to lean on the Team B intelligence assessment, saying that like the Soviet Union was actually building up all this shit, even though it was all lies, basically. So the CIA had competing teams sort of vying for the narrative of what's actually going on with the Soviet Union. And a more paranoid, very neocon-influenced team uh, is the one that basically like made up all these lies about what the Soviet Union was doing to make it seem like a much scarier threat. And apparently that all came from this think tank from the outside. And 33 of their members went inside the Reagan administration, including Richard Pearl, their CIA director, like pretty much like all the famous names from the Reagan administration came from this think tank. So it's kind of almost like a proto PNAC. I'm not exaggerating when I say that, like this, this think tank actually goes back uh, to the 1950s, to the Truman administration. It's very interesting. It's wild. It's wild to hear all of these sound bites that you compiled. That, that to me, was the most fascinating part. Of course, hearing you weave together and give your analysis was really crucial. And especially like the foundation that you laid of all the anti-China hysteria and propaganda that's been built up over the last couple of years. Once you really just like let them speak for themselves, you know, that to me was just horrifying to put it frankly, um, hearing Steve Bannon just speak at length, hearing Bill Gertz, hearing Frank Gaffney, hearing how crazy these motherfuckers are talking about China and essentially accumulating the same foundation for war that we heard during the Iraq war buildup, which is like we need inspectors to disprove oh, the yeah. fact that the Wuhan virus came from this lab in Wuhan. And Everything. it's just so, it's so disturbing. Then you hear Tucker Carlson saying it over and over again. And you've heard it after you release that podcast. I've heard it so much more. Oh, it's dude. like permeated oh, it's so much more throughout like the conservative, like generic conservative establishment too. That, that's why I was glad I put it out when I did, you know, as long as I, I feel pretty confident about putting out something like that, especially if I'm like three days ahead of it exploding in like the mainstream media. And it would just like clockwork, it totally started ramping up, like right mm -hmm. after we put that podcast out. And uh, three things happened, Abby. The the demand for the shutdown of their wet markets. Yep. Um, even Bill Maher just did a segment about it on oh, his last episode. Uh, a demand for it's inspections disgusting. in that lab. And... A demand for repara reparations. China owes the world trillions of dollars in damages now. Those three narratives started to just like explode into like, you know, outside of the bubble of the right wing sphere of media into just like the more generic neoliberal sphere. We started seeing it. And it's like, holy shit. Like th now it starts. This is it. Do you, do you even realize how little we're talking about like Putin and Russia right now? This is the new paradigm. Like this is it's already here. So yeah, everybody check that podcast out. I think you'll get a lot out of it, especially if you liked a very heavy agenda. Um, it's very much in line with the same sort of research in that that film. Yeah, and a lot of people who were notorious for debunking the Russiagate hysteria and narratives um, are kind of going along with this anti-China stuff. But it's just really interesting because it's so clear cut that this is happening, that there is yeah. a agitation campaign a bipartisan push from the corporate media, from the think tank circuit, and from establishment politicians that are all fomenting war and aggression against China. And it's being lapped yes. up readily by the general public 
as you mentioned, I just want to mention this poll. It's not just like the beltway politicians. It's actually Americans in general who are grossly misinformed, who are extremely susceptible to mainstream media propaganda. There was just a poll done by the Washington Post that shows, disturbingly, um, the majority of Americans agree, Robbie. They agree with this, despite the fact that fatalities in America are now the highest in the entire world because of the gross ineptitude and criminal complicity from the U.S. government of inaction. Wait, what percentage? 77% of Americans, including two-thirds, 67% of Democrats, blame China flat out for the global pandemic, 100%. 71% say American companies should completely stop manufacturing from China. Mind you that this is where medical supply chains would be completely like halted. Um, pharmaceuticals, almost all of our pharmaceuticals are made in China right now. Like, Just think about the implications of this. People are so dumb. 69% of Americans support Trump's quote-unquote trade war. 54%, Robbie, as you mentioned, the reparations thing. 54% of Americans said China should pay reparations. That the is such fucking dude, th- gall. Here's the thing. I want to know who did this poll and how they worded it and what they used to do it. Because to, I'm just, the more you're talking about this poll, I'm actually questioning now the who put this together, this poll. It sounds very suspicious to me. <laughs> that high of a percentage of people saying they want reparations. I mean, I only started seeing that rhetoric like three days ago. The Henry Jackson Society, a neocon think tank in, in the UK, actually sued the Chinese government for like something like $2.3 trillion over this um, for reparations. So that's odd. And I would like, I think we should look more deeply into that poll. I'm not surprised. The the reparations thing is very surprising because it's so audacious, but I don't think that blaming China in terms of this bipartisan kind of lapping up of the propaganda. I don't think that's surprising at all. And I would definitely believe that. But but yeah, definitely look into Just on a visceral level. No, I mean, even... Because I see it. It's kind of like after 9-11, right afterwards, the Bush administration and, and a lot of the media actually weren't overtly putting out like Islamophobia. They were dog whistling to it. You know, they showed the dancing Palestinians footage on 9 11 but like a lot of people's visceral reaction was to racistly, you know, xenophobically blame Muslims in the Middle East for what happened. So I think that it's like on some level, it's coming from that too. Like there's not a very, it's not a very big leap for someone on their own to be like, fuck China for this shit. Like it's China's fault. So that's the danger we're facing now is we're in prime ter- psychological territory for the media actually doesn't even have to do much to stoke that because it's like already, it's almost like, it's just um, the American way to blame mm, a, right. another country when something terrible happens. Right, exactly. I mean, so. Exactly. To wrap up that section really quick, donate to Media Roots Radio. We had um, a big donor, Kenneth Powell. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much. And also just um, Thanks, several don- several donations that came in because of your China series. And we really thank people for oh, supporting the uh the podcast and our work and your amazing investigative journalism robbie and we encourage people to to continue to donate if you want to do a one-time donation you can go to mediaroots.org there's a one-time donation link or you can go to patreon.com slash media roots radio we're offering um, special prizes for anyone who donates over 30 dollars, i think so 
you know, we, we totally understand the economic uncertainty and hardships right now, but if you can afford it, please consider donating to us. That's my pitch. We usually do it at the end of the show, but because of your excellent series, I think that it's really worth asking again. Um, and Robbie, today's Easter. Today's Easter. Today's the day that Trump said he would reopen the country. As they claim, I don't really even know if this is accurate, but we're, apparently we're in the middle of the peak right now. It seems like every state has different peaks coming, though, because of the terrible executive actions that were taken or inaction of like coordinating any sort of effort. I still don't understand. This is the thing. Like, the it doesn't matter how long Trump's been in office. He still baffles me and like throws me for a loop all the time. Like, did an evangelical, uh, like televangelist, like get into his ear and tell him to say that that we want to open up all the churches for Easter? Does he want right. to do something crazy like like dog whistle to pastors to actually hold Easter service in secret so that cops could come and like raid the church on video? <laughs> Like take video of that and then use it against like the libs. Like look at these fucking like poor churchgoers who are being like, you know, the deep yeah. state or something is like trying to fucking like take away their religion. I don't even know what he could possibly be thinking, but it's just, again, just more bizarre behavior. And we'll talk about some more of his bizarre behavior, but yeah, it's Easter. You know, I don't know when the fuck they're going to be able to open this shit up again. I, I have a feeling that we're actually going to get a text message on our phone soon saying that, Gavin Newsom has ordered us to stay in until June. They already extended it a month before, so I don't know. Now right. I'm just going off on a tangent, but no, it's, I mean, it's just uncertain. Right. Um. So, yeah, I mean, Trump has been acting extremely bizarre. There are people who are, like, obviously noticing the fact that for three weeks to a month, Trump was saying it was a hoax, not doing anything, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of March, decided to actually take it seriously finally after like ignoring it for a dangerously long time. There are plenty of people who notice that, but suddenly, Abby, it's now the Democrats' fault. It's now Nancy Pelosi's fault. It's now the WHO's fault. It's none of it is Trump's fault anymore. None of it is. And it's just strange how it's just once again the same Roy Cohen-style counterattack mode. Te it's Teflon Don. Like somehow he's escaped out from under the heat of this too. Like everybody was like, oh, definitely the 2020 election now is going to be a referendum on Trump's handling of COVID-19. And I even bought into that. I'm like, of course it is now. But it's almost like he's not even running against Biden. He's like running against his own performance of how he handles this terrible event. And at this point, Abby, I don't even think that even matters. Like he's spun his own media. People have like spun shit so much to make it seem like he didn't do anything wrong that it's like almost has no effect. Something this big still has no effect on him. It's just once again, like that's what that's what's happening. I mean, what yeah, do you think th about that? This should be Trump's downfall, especially given it the fact be. that we have the highest fatality rate in the world, especially given what you just laid out, that he was ridiculing this, that he's been mocking this, that he didn't take serious action, that it's all blamed on China. It's fascinating because why the fuck are we blaming a foreign country when our government did this? did everything wrong in every single way to try to get ahead of this when they knew very well exactly what was coming. And it, no matter how many people die, Trump will maintain kind of this status of like being the untouchable Teflon Don, like you're talking about. And the fact that people are still blaming China and will still blame China instead of our incompetent criminal ruling class, I think really says it all about American exceptionalism and jingoism in general and how unique it is to this country. 
um, because there's this complete inability to just critique the failings of our own horrible system. Just, it was like we just deflect and deflect and deflect. It was like a national structural emperor has no clothes moment for a good week and a half after like the full scope of this really landed, you know, with the meat, with the way the media talked about, started talking about it really seriously. Like it was undeniable. I feel like you know, people on a gut level could tell that this facade we have about our country and the way that we were supposed to take care of people here was totally fake. And that was like fully revealed yeah. to people you almost no matter what your politics were for a second. And then all of a sudden things just got cinched up narratively again. It's like, no, 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 it's China's fault. It's this's fault. It's that's fault. It's they they hoarded the masks from us. It's 3M's fault because they're not they're not um, you know, America first enough. They're giving their masks to other countries. Like stupid shit like that. It's like, what? And that to me that's fascinating because it was a moment where it was like super obvious to everyone that like Bernie's policies, you know, at the very least you know, were, would have actually been what we needed at the very least to have something, some fail safe for a situation like that. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden we're just never, nobody's talking about that anymore. It's just blame other people. Blame the individual governors now. Blame it's the just World this funny Health blame Organization. Game. <laughs> yeah. It's similar to 9-11 actually, how there's just all this finger pointing going right. on. Um, but we know who the real culprits are for this, you know? Uh, but just go, just getting back to Trump's behavior for a second. I mean, at one of these Rose Garden press conferences, and he's been doing these from the White House press conferences almost every single day, which is actually shocking for him. Like, this is the most interaction he's ever had with the press. And at first, he had this somber mood where it seemed like he was going to be like, now I'm presidential for the first time ever, and I'm actually going to cave and start seriously warning the American public about this. And he did that for like two days, and then now he's just back to being his old self, using these press conferences to just argue with people about how they're doing a great job. Everything they're doing is great. Nothing's wrong. Um, and it's just surreal. And it's every single day. He's been doing this every single day. And at one of them, he literally brings up the MyPillow guy, uh, Mike Lindell. Uh, I don't know if you've seen these commercials for MyPillow, the guy who wears the giant crucifix <laughs> around his neck. He brings him up to the podium. And everybody who isn't a Trump bootlicker who watched it was obviously horrified and confused. And of course, if you were horrified and confused, um, Trump bootlickers and the MAGA people were all spinning it as you got fucking triggered by the, my pillow guy on TV, you fucking pussy, you fucking triggered <laughs> snowflake. It's like, wait, what? Like what? It's almost like a, it's just, it's like it's, Trump set a cartoon <laughs> trap for us. It's like, everything's just a troll, I guess, where it's just like, if we get, if we're weirded out by it, we got triggered. I, I don't know. It's just, he never, he never takes a hit. It's just like, then the day after the press conference, the My Pillow psychopath, the guy, Mike Lindell. What did he say he at the press conference? I never watched this because I just couldn't I handle get, it. Oh, I didn't even mention this part. I guess Trump brought him up because his company is going to start building or manufacturing <laughs> surgical masks or something. <laughs> So this is so I want to buy a surgical mask from a QAnoner guy, uh, because what happened is the day after the press conference, the <laughs> My Pillow guy from his official Twitter account retweets a fairly big QAnon account, and the QAnon account that he retweets says, "quote What an interesting coupon code you have right now." Q coupon, get it? Yeah, I mean, what is going on? 
How could it? It just can't get any weirder than this. And then, well, it can because Trump's hydroxychloroquine obsession is also really strange. And feeling like he has the authority to keep giving out medical advice directly from his own press conferences constantly, repeatedly, it defies comprehension. I mean, what what do you think is happening with that? I, it came out that a top donor like manufactures it. That's well, of course. And, you know, that was maybe the first thing that I thought maybe he's somehow his friends are making money or he's making money off this. But even if Trump is making a little bit of money off this, it still doesn't fully explain to me his obsession, because on some level, I feel like Trump still wants people to perceive him as some kind of like right. deity right. that can perform miracles, a miracle worker. And he wants people to believe that his advocacy for an anti-malaria drug <laughs> that is actually being run on currently, people with lupus and legit malaria needed to survive, that he's doing he's doing advocacy for this because he wants to make this appearance that he is doing something to save America. Right. And he needs like, to it's double down It's not about down getting enough it. ventilators. It's not about getting people enough, uh, you know, universal basic income to make it through this. It's not even about making sure that we have enough hospitals. It's just about some kind of miracle cure, like a snake oil, like salesman. I mean, it's beyond just coming from like reality TV or tabloid world. It's snake oil level. And even though this drug hydroxychloroquine has been proven effective to help people, some people with COVID-19, um, it still just doesn't make sense why Trump specifically keeps pushing it unless he has some kind of like ego-driven need to make yes. people think he's like a miracle yes. worker. Yes, and you saw him in some of these press conferences. He was just like, I should have been a doctor. He's like, yeah, I, should exactly. have, he should, I shouldn't so, have been dude, president. I should have been a doctor. This whole thing where it's like he wants people to believe that he alone was able to fight the establishment's doomsaying about the virus and it's going to kill you. And it's actually not because it's his uh, idea will cure everybody. He wants to fight Anthony Fauci. He stopped him from t commenting on it for, at a press conference. It's super, super strange. Well, it makes no sense. And this is another thing that is allegedly triggering libs, like all the right-wing media sycophants who defend Trump, everything that he says have come out and they're just like, oh, like, so you want to like ban this drug that's going to save lives? Like, and then they just point, you know, it just never stops. They'll just defend him and be like, well, the drug does work and like it is working and like, how dare you do this? And it's so irresponsible and, and it should be like criminal because we have no idea what this drug does. Yeah, it seems like very cynical too. Like it seems like they have definitely some weird hidden agenda for why they're pushing it so much. Like maybe they specifically want to punish one pharmaceutical company that might have had like the leg up on getting like a, a another coronavirus treatment drug on the market that was new that they like could copyright. It's 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 could I mean who the fuck knows? It's yeah, I think so when weird. Trump has something dead set like and he he's just convinced himself that this is like like you said <laughs> some sort of miracle drug like he will not stop. Because he has such a weird one-track mind, and that's like all he cares about. I guess because the media has been berating him about how irresponsible it is to promote this drug that hasn't been like FDA approved and tested, and he just like can't help himself because he's so he like egomaniacal. Yeah, but what's so yeah. funny about like him, you know, lashing out against his own against Fauci or whatever? He himself just said a couple weeks ago that it would be a great success if 200,000 Americans die only. And now he's yeah. like, oh, see, like this is all, 
you know, this has all been like hyped up to make me look bad. It's like, well, what is it? They I mean, you it. were, you yourself were playing into it. Then. Well, of course. And the bailout bill. It's like this bailout bill that everyone's like going after the Democrats for. Trump did sign it. And now they're acting like he's like complaining about it. The whole thing is just like, they're trying to rewrite history in terms of their narrative that they're pushing like on a daily basis. And somehow his followers just go along with it. I mean, it, it really is cult-like. It's not even like fascist or authoritarian. Like it's more just like cultish cartoon fascism, maybe. Right. You know, if you want to talk about cartoon fascism, let's talk about the weirdness of Trump's relationship again with the OANN network, which is just, again, baffling and bizarre. A roster of weird airhead like Liz Wall style reporters who are getting into the White House press conference room, asking Trump tons of questions during these live press conferences, followed by Trump saying things like, Oh, I like that question. Oh, that's a great question. Very good question. <laughs> it's like a clear, like, plant. Like, he has just, like, this extremely loyal news network that's there just to ask him tons of softballs. It's, it's odd. And then he even tweeted uh, yesterday. Uh, he said, quote, Watching Fox News on weekend afternoons is a total waste of time. We now have some great alternatives like OANN. It's just strange, too, because these OANN videos on YouTube, they get very low views for being directly promoted by Trump. I mean, you look at them right now, they have weak old videos that get between 1,000 and 10,000 views. It's just, I, don't, I can't even make sense of that. And also, they just do bizarre shit where they were actually running a segment talking about if the coronavirus escaped from a uh, lab or not. And they, when they mentioned the scientist's name who they were quoting... They showed a picture from 2001, A Space Odyssey, showing Dr. Bowman, <laughs> the fictional characters, if he was the scientist they were talking about. It's just weird. It's like, what is the OANN network? Is it now like an arm of the U.S. government? Like, is, is somehow Trump's own government funneling money to them? Like, what the hell is it? And did you know that they actually called out, the Trump administration called out, uh, radio? I think it was Voice of America, for spreading Chinese propaganda, pro-China wow. propaganda. It's super, dude, it just gets weirder and weirder. I mean, yeah, he loves like servile networks that just show 100% fealty to him. And I think that's exactly what OANN does. He like doesn't like that Fox, that they're not just 100% behind him all the time. Yeah, and then even the fact that he, his own White House would go after the State Department's own right. media arm. And Mike Pompeo is now the head of the State Department. Mike Pompeo is very loyal to Trump. And there's Trump at a press conference a week and a half ago saying, um, and here's so-and-so from the State Department, the deep State Department. You like that? <laughs> and it's like, what the fuck? Like, what, what does it even mean? Good one, dude. Good one. And then everyone's just like, oh, dude, Trump's amazing. Did you see him call the deep, the State Department the deep State Department? So he's calling I, I Mike Pompeo part of the deep state? Very cool. I don't, it's so fucking weird. And then Bill Gertz, I think, tweeted like, great dig or something. I think I sent you that tweet where he was just like, oh, shit, like Trump said deep State Department. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, dude. I saw that too. Uh, what's also funny is all of a sudden we start seeing Trump sparred with reporters in the White House who he says are planted by China. <laughs> Somebody from a, a TV network called Phoenix TV um, that apparently gets some funding from some ex-Chinese government official. 
And that's specifically, I said that because that's true. He's actually not part of the Chinese government anymore. He's like retired. But the American government and all these like right wingers have been like, no, that's obvious that he's that, he, that this is a Chinese reporter. It's like a Chinese state the TV hell? reporter. And like Cernovich and all these people were like blasting her and stuff. And it's like, this just seems like a total setup because who even put her in there in that room? You know, if Trump could get in an OANN reporter, which obviously like the White House press corps or group of people, there's a there's obviously an official body that doesn't want that shit to happen. So like, how did she get in there? It just seemed like a setup, just to, like a total theatrical fucking move by his cartoon fascist administration. Yeah, it's amazing to call out CIA funded organizations like Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, actually puppets of China, you know, and the, and the World Health Organization, a puppet of China, even though it's literally taking authority to veto emergency loans that are requested from the IMF from countries like Iran and Venezuela that are struggling um, because of the sanctions and blockade by the U.S. empire, the WHO completely capitulates to the to the U.S. all the time and severs ties with these countries that need emergency assistance. But they're the they're the China puppet because they literally said there's no reason to doubt China's numbers and they praise China for their response. And now Trump's saying, oh, I'm going to I'm going to cut all aid to the World Health Organization. Why? Because they had the audacity to praise China's response efforts and the fact that China is now stepping up and delivering much-needed medical equipment across the world, including a thousand ventilators to New York City that Trump fucking couldn't get his shit together to send. Like, if you want to have an actual debate about the corruption of the WHO and, you know, how they're managed and who's, you know, what type of people run it, that's like a whole nother argument to have, but this is not the argument people are having. They're just going after it specifically for being a quote unquote puppet of China. And you just want to go into this WHO thing quickly because I feel like we should just get this out of the way now. Yeah. Before going to the rest of the China stuff. But this all started basically where media surrogates of Trump originally took advantage of a video clip done by a Hong Kong reporter of a top WHO official. It wasn't the main guy that you see around right now. I forgot what his name is. But she brought up the highly politically controversial topic of Taiwanese independence and asked this guy why it wasn't listed as a separate country by the WHO in their stats. Um, the guy obviously didn't have like a stock answer. He couldn't think on his feet. So he appeared to actually hang up the call. And this looked bad. You know, the video clip of this interview looked bad, even though it was likely a setup by this journalist to provoke an uncomfortable reaction from this WHO official. But none, nevertheless, it started the ball rolling and opened the door for a huge ramp up of anti-WHO sentiment for essentially being a puppet of China. And then people went back and started finding tweets where the WHO actually got facts wrong about COVID-19, like saying that there was no proof of human-to-human -human transmission. You know, they said that um, on Twitter, I think, in January. So everybody was pulling out all these things and coalescing them into this false narrative that they were covering for China. They're the ones who actually put the world in danger. And uh, none of this, again, was Trump's fault. It was the WHO's fault. And then it started to take on this sort of level of, like, John Bolton-esque, 
why should we have any obligations to this? We should stop funding it. We shouldn't be held accountable by this body. Who are they? What kind of authority do they have over us? You know, it's similar to the way that the Trump administration resurrected that Bush era anti-UN, anti-international mm-hmm. criminal court right. mentality. But now the mainstream media, you know, shifted from originally putting most of the blame on the Trump administration and the and basically the lack of bureaucratic fail-safes put in place um, to actually blaming the WHO and kind of blaming China now. But then on the other hand, you have Tucker Carlson and Fox News running segments showing CNN praising the delivery of masks from China to Italy and Tucker Carlson and people on Fox News characterizing it as sycophantic pro-China state, pro-state media propaganda. Like that (laughs) CNN is a mouthpiece for the China's state media apparatus. And it's like, really? And so, so basically it's almost trying to gaslight these other media organizations. It's almost like trying to create a challenge where it's like, you better say bad things about China or we're going to go after you for being like pro China now. Um, And I feel like it can be used. It's obviously going to be used in the same way that you're pro Russia or pro Putin. If you just say things that happen to be in line with the Russian state media line. It just makes no sense on every level that China failed to disclose like how severe the pandemic was and didn't contain it correctly. Meanwhile, New York, all of the the epicenter of the outbreak here in the U.S., where like 6,000 people have died already. It's horrifying. All the cases were tracked to Europe. Most of the cases were tracked to Europe. So this whole like travel ban on China actually did nothing. And all the fear mongering against China was completely futile. Back in early November, after the outbreak was happening in China, there was already secret intelligence reports being accumulated here saying um, that the U.S. government knew exactly what was going to happen and that it would be on the scale of a, quote, cataclysmic event. Cataclysmic event. This is how many months before Trump even did anything about it or even like admitted the reality of coronavirus? Almost two whole months. And just really quickly, there is also a follow up. I believe it was based off of that report. Uh, It's called the Red Dawn leaks or something. Yeah, I just saw that. I didn't read those, though. Well, it's interesting because, you know, something, again, that WikiLeaks, I guess, decided not to participate in, which they didn't since the Hillary Clinton email leaks, but they haven't, you know, posted any of these leaks. Again, this is another leak from the Trump administration where it's an email chain, paper trail showing them talking about it like months ago and how serious this was going to be. So it's not just this report we know about now. It's like an actual email chain that proves that they've been lying the whole time. So it's not really a surprise at all. It's just... How come people who are obsessed with the DNC leaks don't care about these kind of leaks? It's like nothing can hurt Trump still. Yeah, it seems like people are just more focused on the Democratic establishment still across the board, across the political spectrum. And everyone just is forgetting the fact that Trump did this. And all these healthcare professionals and medical experts, that's who's part of these Red Dawn leaks. So obviously these people who were briefed with these U.S. intelligence officials and medical health professionals knew the severity, they knew the urgency, and they knew exactly what was coming. So that's where we're at. That's where we're at. But even you hear Governor Cuomo, who praised China for giving them much-needed medical equipment, and he was berated 
by everyone saying, oh, you fucking <laughs> fell for it, dude. You fell for it. You fell for the Chinese Communist Party currying favor, their big propaganda effort where they shipped masks and ventilators to you, fucking tool, communist agent. And so now he's coming out and saying, well, you know, I don't know much about foreign policy. That's not my specialty, even though like the fucking New York City Police Department has a branch in Tel Aviv. Um, he even was just like, you know, I think the World Health Organization has a lot to answer for, Robbie. And he's like now getting on the kick that they didn't blow the whistle early enough, blaming them for the outbreak in New York City. If I remember correctly, I feel like New York City really waited a hell of a lot longer than Gavin Newsom did to put into oh, like any sort of or shelter two. in place order. When we literally knew, like we were looking at New York and we we're like, what are they doing? Yeah, no, it was really strange. I mean... They quarantined uh, uh, parts of upstate New York. But yeah, New York City was, it was like a time bomb. We all knew based on what we were seeing that it was going to be hit the hardest. And yeah, they, they were acted really slowly. So I, I don't know what the hell they were thinking. It, it seemed really babyish. It seemed, like, it seemed like he really was trying to avoid criticizing Trump is what I'm saying. It's like they're so scared oh, yeah. of Trump. Cuomo, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. You well, know? everybody's everybody's held hostage because they know how punitive he is that if they don't have loyalty, then he's going to like not send them shit. Right. He was actually bragging at these press conferences. I watched a couple of them where he brought it up multiple times that all the governors love him. He basically was saying that the only governors who are saying anything bad about him right now are like governors who are hurting their own people who suck. And all the ones who are <laughs> praising him are like the good ones. I mean, of course he's saying that. Um, and Gavin Newsom, of course, keeps sucking his dick. So, oh my yeah, everybody God. knows that they have to be really loyal to him. That's his personality. Well, this doesn't one, really mean anything. Yeah. Previously, I was like, the one good thing Trump did was enact this Defense Production Act to force companies to make medical equipment. Of course, it was, you know, really late in the game, but he finally did it. Well, apparently, uh, according to Sarah Lazar, who I found this out from, the Defense Production Act has a serious downfall that these companies can now be prevented under this kind of executive authority to send much needed medical equipment to so-called enemy states. To Latin America or other locations, the company 3M, the healthcare company, released a press release just saying there's significant humanitarian implications of seizing respirator supplies to healthcare workers in Canada and Latin America, where we are a critical supplier of respirators. So seizing all export of respirators produced in the U.S. would likely cause other countries to retaliate, as some have already done. And if that were to occur, the net number of respirators being made available to the U.S. would actually decrease. So it would just have the complete reverse effect of whatever Trump is trying to fucking do to punish other countries. So that's happening. Yeah, the whole thing is just... It's not how it appears on the surface. I mean, at first it seemed like he was actually going to like force somehow like take federal authority over these like factories and companies and like make them make shit for like no profit or something. But uh, that's not at all what it is. Like that's how I, I was misled into thinking that, which is also not necessarily good, you know, to think of someone like the Trump administration doing, having that kind of authority. That's scary because that's like a very fascist, potentially fascist thing. To just like merge, you know, like GE, parts of GE with, uh, you know, the federal government. So it's now gone beyond the right wing media talking about this. Now we see a shift into the intellectual neoliberal institutions of 
WHO blame and criticism um, that's going to places like the Atlantic, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post. Um, not surprising. You know, just one example, Barry Weiss, uh, she tweeted this on April 3rd. She said, when the full history of this episode is eventually written, the Chinese Communist Party will bear massive responsibility for this plague that has swept the earth. So will a WHO that seemed too interested in the health of the Chinese regime. Amen. Yeah, just going right along with the Josh Rogan narrative. What a complete dumbass. Just this echo chamber of anti-communist idiots. So what about Trump, Barry? Yeah. I thought you were a never-Trumper. Well, here's an interesting thing. Here's an article, another article from The Atlantic, just to give you an example of how much this is actually starting to shift the dialogue. Um, it's from April 5th, 2020. Nadia Shadlow uh, has an editorial called Consider the Possibility that Trump is Right About China. Critics are letting their disdain for the president blind them to geopolitical realities. So you're starting to see this more Eli Lake Roganish narrative about how even though Trump is uncouth and he's a bumbling crazy person, you still have to admit he's right, you know, on these specific things, on what he's doing with Iran, on what he's doing with China. That's what we're starting to see. The think tank circuit is actually like, and when I say the think tank circuit, like at the Atlantic and some of these other outlets I mentioned are sort of outcroppings of that think tank circuit. They echo the same narratives. So you're you're starting to see that narrative sort of proliferate. Um, oh, and that's I mean, interesting to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, even people like Glenn Greenwald, I was really surprised and alarmed to see him kind of come down on you and people like Dan Cohen and Adam Johnson on Twitter, who is a notorious Russiagate debunker. He has been at the front yeah. lines defending this absurd narrative that's hijacked our political discourse for the last four years about how Russia is the root of all evil in the U.S. and caused the Trump election, defending Matt Stoller. Um, for kind of parroting this bizarre, really neoconservative like propaganda against China. And I was just really surprised to see it, Robbie, uh, because I, I guess I expected more from Glenn based on his past with Russiagate and being so good on it. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm not, I, I'm not entirely surprised. Um, and I just think he just has a fundamental misunderstanding of a lot of things. Like he, I saw in that interchange, he basically said that you know, Trump loves China. And it's like, that's not really what's going on. It's like, just because Trump rhetorically will say, just because Trump will say nice things about Xi Jinping doesn't mean that they're not like trying to wage some kind of asymmetrical warfare with China. They're already trying to wage, this is already known, they're trying to wage a trade war with China. And the understanding is, I guess a lot of people have taken at face value, including Glenn, that that trade war with China is because of like white working class America and like bringing back factories here at home to like enrich America. That's the con I think that they've bought into. You just have to look at the people who are really involved in trying to drive this wedge right now. And they're, they're very cynical people. They don't really care about that. Um, it's people like Frank Gaffney who understand the power and rallying against an enemy. They understand the evil empire narrative and how important that is for like American society and hegemony and everything else. It's a sort of a, it's an important heroic nationalistic myth that helps like fuel, you know, some energy here in this country and help prop up the empire itself. Yeah. And it's just, it, it just really was deflating to see that, you know, I had just come off of re researching all this stuff for this podcast 
I heard a bunch of Bannon's rhetoric about Wall Street and China and how he thinks that the Davos Wall Street crowd is in bed with China. They're the globalists. You know, Trump is a nationalist trying to fight against that. And some of the things Glenn was saying uh, seemed to actually echo that narrative. And I just found that disappointing. And, you know, Matt Stoller is getting all this publicity right now for his views on China and trying to, you know, say that the left failed, the Bernie movement failed. So therefore, we need to reexamine what these real issues are that the, the populist right is concerned about and take them seriously. And we need to take people like Bannon seriously because he's really tapped into these issues and, uh, you know, like him or hate him, he's still like really ahead of the curve and understands like how important these issues are for like a stable society. Just like weird spin on... So I don't even know if this is making sense, but it's... No, yeah. I mean, it is. But it was disappointing because it's a clear sign that that Glenn is not going to be someone who calls out anti-Chinese propaganda in the media. Right. Even though it's obviously ramping up in a really artificial way right now. The Steve Bannon thing is really disturbing because this is a guy who is a white nationalist. We did an expose on Steve Bannon for Empire Files that people can check out. Like he even says that he hates Asian people. He is a, a virulent racist, um, not just Muslims. He actually was like, yeah, Asian people shouldn't even be in this country. He says that. He is like very neo-Nazi-esque. And that's why it's shocking that people think that he has really good intuition and good things to say that we should entertain, especially as leftists. Well, I think that that's part of it is they, they want to be rebels. They want to rebel against this idea that all these people that are called Nazis, we want to like be edgy and interview them or platform them just to like rebel against this. So I think that's almost like part of it. But if part you of can't the crush their rhetoric, then why are you doing it? Because you're just giving them a, a way to reach your audience as this fake populist appeal. Of course. No, of course. And I think that they don't think... That's not the thing that they're threatened by. Like they're, they don't even think, I don't even think on some level, they don't even think like this, this idea of like neo-Nazism or, you know, stealth white nationalism is like dangerous. So they're, they're kind of in denial about that. And I think what really bothers me specifically is that like, they're not going to challenge Bannon on his like anti-China propaganda, like the geopolitical stuff he's pushing. And in fact, seemingly adopted. So, you know, and Tucker's, anti-China mm -hmm. propaganda. So it's like not just the fact that they're sort of endorsing on some level this an, a figure who's a neo-Nazi. It's that they're not challenging the, the anti-China stuff and in some cases actually endorsing that like directly. So, I mean, it's a real mess. It is a real mess. I don't know it what more to say mess. about it. There's nothing else to say about it. There's nothing else to say about it. Um, you mentioned the bailout. And I think this part really just struck me as someone who uses the mail and really loves the postal service and really just was really excited about Bernie's idea about making the postal service, you know, back how it used to be where they actually act as like a bank as well. While Trump is bailing out cruise liners and candy dynasties, he refuses to bail out the much needed postal service who is in dire need of financial assistance It employs 600,000 workers in fact, Trump threatened to veto the entire $2 trillion bailout if it included any sort of funds for the Postal Service. <laughs> this is something that was established in our Constitution as the Postal Clause that says that it should be protected. 
It's even fully funded by the sale of stamps. It doesn't even use tax dollars. And it's important to realize that this is a concerted effort by Republicans, just like the defunding of the VA and like the last bastions of somehow, you know, government services that the Republicans like to bemoan as examples of the failures of government run institutions and the push for privatization and neoliberalism. Um, this is a similar type thing where they purposefully defunded and bankrupted the Postal Service years ago. During the Bush administration in 2006, there was an, uh, an act passed called the Postal Accountability Enhancement Act. This is insane. It mandated that within 10 years, the USPS would have to fully fund retirement health care benefits for the next 75 years. Like up front, up front fully fund retirement health care benefits for future employees that weren't even going to be born until 2057. It's a comically insane thing to do that was literally just meant to bankrupt the Postal Service. Can you imagine if they did this to literally any other corporation, any corporation in the U.S.? It would be called Marxist. It would be called absurd, like communist policy. That's like authoritarian and crazy. But for some reason, this just happened. It's a miracle the post office has even been open. But right now, during the coronavirus stuff, they're suffering and they need money and they need financial assistance. And Trump is now saying no. And we actually might see the post office shut down as a result of all of this, which is so tragic because they're the ones busting their asses on the front lines, risking their lives to get us fucking mail. It's the saddest thing ever. I mean... It's just super sad to think about the last time, you know, they were sort of treated almost like sacrificial lambs during the anthrax attacks, mm -hmm. not given the Cipro warning. Two of them died from anthrax. Uh, it, it's it's absolutely uh, super, super sad. It's also sad to think about just what would happen if the post office no longer existed here, how expensive it would be to ship things. If you're a small business and you ship things... Um, you know, you don't ship things very often. You don't ship things in bulk. Uh, you're going to be spend, spending a lot more money on shipping. Um, and it's going to make, you know, it's going to crush some small businesses. For example, I run an independent record label. And just the fact that the United States Postal Service had to double their rates after what you're talking about happened, they actually had to double their rates for sending overseas shipping. Yep. So, just sending a single vinyl record, for example, overseas right now from the United States, just one unit costs over $20. Yep. That is, that makes it virtually impossible without a distributor to like run an independent record label and send your things direct to customers overseas. You almost have to have a distro. There were, there was a time period before that where you could send tapes, you could use, um, uh, what's it called? Surface mail overseas where it was really cheap. You could send a, a giant box of tapes and CDs to a distributor for barely any money. And now you can't do that at all. And, you know, to take away the post office entirely, it's horrifying to think yeah. how many small businesses will be crushed from just shipping costs. Yeah, we would have to just shut down uh, our store, you know, like the Empire Files store that we sell merch through. Um, our Gaza Fights for Freedom DVDs. People already write us from all over the world asking why the fuck our international shipping rates are so high. And it's like hard to explain well, yeah, how dysfunctional it. the post office has become on purpose. This isn't 
you know, this isn't just us trying to price gouge. Like, this is the way it is because of what the Republicans have done. And yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing because if you compare these rates to like UPS and FedEx, it's like, tri- it's like tripled, you know? I mean, that's how much it is to just ship domestically. So it's, it's outrageous. I cannot even believe what is happening. And it's just disgusting. It's disgusting that you'll dole out billions of dollars for Mars Candy Bar Company and you can't fucking supply the post office with adequate PPE and also funds that they need to survive. That's like the one functioning thing right now that we need. You know, that aside, I wanted to also mention that a lot of people aren't thinking really about the 1.5 million people who live in this country in, quote, plumbing poverty, which means that they have no access to running water. A large portion of this population are Native American. We do not think about these people or how they are basically sacrificial lambs of the system when we talk about how to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And this is not counting the people who have water shut off. There is no nationwide moratorium on utility shutoffs like Venezuela has done, right? Venezuela made actually layoffs illegal and has paid rent for six months, as well as done a ton of other shit that's super pro-working class. There is no like official block on utility shutoffs. So, you know, you heard that statistic probably that like one third of American renters couldn't pay rent in April. It's probably going to be worse in May. Nearly 40% of Americans live in areas that rely on water utilities, which have not stopped the policy of shutoffs for non-payment, according to The Guardian. So think about Detroit, right? Think about Detroit and Michigan that have suffered this problem for years and years. Flint still doesn't have fucking clean drinking water. Um, And they have one of the highest infection and death rates in the entire country right now. And there's nothing that is more emblematic of how this entire country is one giant corporate sacrifice zone, then the recent news, it becomes very literal when you see the recent news that the U.S. government, the Trump administration, just gave a giant blank check to huge chemical, oil, and gas corporations saying they can pollute at will, Robbie. During the pandemic, they can pollute with no penalties in a sweeping and unprecedented suspension of environmental laws. This, oh, is yeah. some, this is something that was already in place, like Hurricane Harvey aftermath when we were in Houston covering that. We were alarmed to find out that like all these chemical companies that were in sacrifice zones where schools and hospitals are right across the street and all these low income people and minority neighborhoods have like horrible health effects from them. We were already alarmed enough to know that there was already caveats in the law that said that they didn't have to be fined. And this is just like taking the gloves off of everyone across the country in one fell swoop with no end in sight. Just, oh, by the way, do whatever you want. Yeah, I know we're in a global pandemic right now, so you guys are good. You guys are good, dude. Just just pollute, dump all your shit, dump PCBs in the water, um, throw whatever you want, you know, in the air. It's fine. That's what's happening. Because especially because everyone sort of has to shelter in place right now. So what are they actually doing in... Are there any even reporters um, who are going to be willing to cover that right now and try to go investigate that and get the footage of that? You know, it's just awful to think that that might actually include even polluting the water supply. Absolutely. Drinking waters. Absolutely. Uh, around the country. It's just very disturbing. Yeah. And all these people who are like, oh, COVID-19 isn't affecting black people. Well, guess what? 
as we talked about in the I even bought podcast, into that. I thought that at first too. Yeah, well now it's affecting like predominantly African American populations. 72% of the COVID deaths in Chicago were African American. Meanwhile, not even 30% of the city uh, is comprised of African Americans. And it just shows you that a lot of people who are dying from this are people with underlying health conditions, people who are already disproportionately impacted by socioeconomic conditions that live in minority neighborhoods that are living in these so-called sacrifice zones um, that are, you know, in the middle of food deserts or whatever. I mean, it's just their economic status because they're already in a disproportionate place in society because of their skin color, because of their income status. And this is what's happening. Now we're seeing this uh, really take root. And if you look at the actual death statistics in New York and look at the boroughs that are being hit the hardest, they're all the boroughs with the most people of color. I mean, yep. It lines up exactly with that. It's um, it's super sad. And I mean, speaking of Native, Native Americans really quick, I think it's worth looking back. And a lot of people are looking back at the Spanish flu pandemic right now as sort of a comparison for what's going on now. But now is also a good time to look back and actually research the real history of what happened during the smallpox pandemics, which seemed to go on for almost 2,000 years, which is really crazy to think about, that they just kept coming in waves. And there were time periods in history where one out of five of your family members was expected to die from smallpox. It was just like that was the reality of the world you lived in. And when we brought it over, you know, when missionaries brought it over to the Native Americans, literally destroyed most of their population. The pandemic effect in Native American populations was so disproportionate that it was basically almost like a part of the genocide. And to say that, you know, it was accidental that these blankets that had smallpox on them were given to all these Native Americans. I mean, who knows what actually happened? I'm sure some people had learned at the time what you could do to spread smallpox to someone. So who the fuck actually knows how much of that was intentional and used as almost like an early bioweapon, but it's, it's really sad. Um, anytime this kind of situation happens, it always affects the most vulnerable in society automatically. Absolutely. Uh, I wanted to quickly plug our Empire Files video, the latest video that we put out where we talk about how the U.S. Empire is advancing war, militarism, and imperialism under the cover of COVID. Check it out on Empire Files on our YouTube channel. Please subscribe and watch it and spread the word. Like literally every region of the world that the U.S. military has a presence in, you can expect more death, suffering, and destruction um, at the hands of U.S. Empire, including Somalia. Uh, the U.S. has been bombing Somalia, killing civilians every week basically since the pandemic um, exploded around the world. In Afghanistan, the U.S. is still bombing the Taliban in Afghanistan after the, the deal fell apart again for the millionth time, tightening sanctions on Iran, as I mentioned before, blocking the IMF emergency loans to Iran and Venezuela. This bounty on Maduro's head is probably the most blatant act of aggression because the fact that they're trying to pursue full-on regime change again in Venezuela, where you have Mike Pompeo saying, you know, Maduro will never be able to govern, saying, proposing a transition plan, doing these press conferences showing the narco-trafficking kingpins in Venezuela, where Maduro and his cohorts are all responsible for trafficking cocaine. <laughs> Meanwhile, you have the actual president of Colombia and Honduras, who were charged, actually from like U.S. agencies as well, 
with narco trafficking. I'm sorry, we already know that Colombia produces the largest amount of cocaine in the world and the U.S. consumes it. Just like when you're looking at heroin coming from Afghanistan and the U.S. is the largest consumer of heroin. But yeah, the $15 million bounty that they put on his head is essentially like a kidnapping bounty while Maduro's trying to deal with this pandemic and do all this stuff. Now he has to have potentially extra security detail, worry about more people trying to take him out, hand him over to the U.S., or the opposition that's being paid by U.S. tax dollars to the tens of millions of dollars for his head on a plate. You know, and they're, and they're putting commandos and ships surrounding Venezuela again. Like, what are they doing? What are they going to do? During this global pandemic, they're going to try to, like, do a Panamanian-style just cause invasion of Venezuela and kidnap <laughs> Maduro, you know, and potentially that's, kill thousands yeah, and thousands of Venezuelans. I mean, how far is this going to go? Yeah, I, I, it's very weird that they're ramping that up again, but it's also not too surprising. You know, they're going to take advantage of this situation. Let's see if they follow through on it. Hopefully not. Hopefully it's just more posturing and weird threats. That's sick. But uh, now that they've actually, so they actually put an, an indictment out on him. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they can't like, it's not like they're going to take that back and be like, whoops, we didn't mean it. I mean, so they've definitely like escalated the stakes. Yeah. And there's this hilarious clip. I don't know if you caught this in our episode of Brian Hook actually saying Iran is a theocratic Marxist regime. And we're putting sanctions. I did see that, yes. Isn't that insane? Very strange. Yep, very strange. (laughs) Like, what the hell? Marxist. Iran is Marxist. Unbelievable, I guess so. Wow. I guess it is. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. That's the first time I've ever heard that, but... Yeah, very, very cool. And then, of course, all these war games in the Philippine Sea, the South China Sea, you know, on top of all the anti-China stuff. Like, this is translating into actual posturing militarily. You know, this isn't just rhetoric. As bad as the rhetoric is, and as much as it's leading to something, they are actually, like, threatening China constantly with these war games. Yeah. I mean, and we've been incessantly accusing the Chinese government of being behind this that saying that it's a bioweapon of some kind, different little, you know, suspicious media cutout organizations and surrogates for who the fuck knows, um, have been insinuating this. And we also know that people inside the U S government have also been pumping this theory in intelligence agencies that was leaked. A lot of dangerous things happening right now. And I'm sure the Chinese government is picking up on all of those things and paying very close attention to them as they should be. Um, because the U.S. is trying to pull something that's very, very sketchy. Yeah, but Robbie, while the U.S. is blocking PPE medical equipment from nurses and doctors on the front lines and like, you know, postal workers and grocery store workers and pharmacy workers, a U.S. organization or U.S. government organization or agency facilitated the distribution of one million masks to the IDF, to the Israeli military. Oh, sweet. So that's what happened. While all these people are literally getting fired, you know, all these all these think pieces about China firing whistleblowers and whistleblowers dying from COVID-19. And oh, my God, what about all these people who are getting fired here for appealing on social media that they need PPE for fundraising on GoFundMe that they need ventilators and masks that they're wearing soiled masks for a week and they need masks. They're getting fired. They're getting fired. Yeah, or even like the, and I'm not trying to like lift up this military general because who knows, he's probably, you know, he might be a total piece of shit, but this like ship captain guy 
who quit, you know, out of like principle because he didn't want to um, continue to like infect his own crew. And then that guy who came to replace him, like said that he's like a, like a total idiot and a moron or something like to the, all the rest of the crew. And you could hear the crew like acting like really shocked that this guy is saying that. Like, so, I mean, we sit here and criticize the Chinese government. Can you imagine if they did something like that? I mean, it'd be all over the news here. If they like, you know, some ship captain quit out of protest over there. And then the guy who replaced him, like called him a moron and an idiot <laughs> for like not wanting his crew to die of the disease. It's just, so we just have such a double standard. Oh, yeah. Radio Free Asia is actually one of the very early sources um, of the story that it came from a Chinese bioweapons lab, um, which is really crazy in and of itself. You know, why would they be spreading something so inflammatory? Now, a couple of days ago, a new report from Radio Free Asia came out saying that uh, China is actually burning hundreds of bodies that are still alive <clears throat> Living human beings in body bags, throwing them directly in like an oven and cremating them alive. Why would they be doing that? I don't know. Good question, Abby. Just to call the but, herd. Um, <laughs> yeah, but Radio Free Asia is reporting this. And a bunch of people are now buying into it, spreading it around. Uh, there's a really, really viral documentary by the very suspicious Epoch Times being spread around right now uh, saying that the the weapon or that the virus COVID-19 is a Chinese bioweapon and it's like a half hour long documentary. It already has almost 10 million views on YouTube. So yeah, shit's out of control. Yeah. That was a really fascinating part of your podcast, Epic, Epic Times or whatever. Um, the really bizarre, probably CIA front of like the Falun Gong people who have bought out 70% of all YouTube ads right now. Like I brought that up to my friends and they were like, oh my God. They were like, dude, it's everywhere. Oh, it's, it's everywhere. And they started distributing a physical copy of it in the Bay Area while people are sheltered in place. So whoever is distributing Epoch Times for free in Berkeley currently, because I know this happened like three days ago, is violating the shelter in place order because that's not that's not an essential service to deliver a anti-Chinese propaganda <laughs> newspaper to people's doorsteps right now during the pandemic. And it's kind of interesting that they would be doing it specifically right now. My friend who got a copy of it on his doorstep has never gotten one before. So they know right now people are afraid. They know right now people might be bored enough to read it. It's actually kind of really cynically, maliciously evil way to promote their thing, their paper to do it right now during this and blaming China for it in the paper. Yeah, no, it's fascinating though. Yeah, look into the Epoch Times, look into this bizarre channel called NTDT. Um, it's another anti-Chinese channel funded by the Falun Gong. They actually have a pro QAnon show on it called The Edge of Wonder that's funded by the Falun Gong or that's like part of another Falun Gong channel that's like two white guys talking about QAnon and all the breadcrumbs. What? And now Trump is about to arrest the deep state pedo elite. Yeah, it's fucking nuts, dude. Oh, this network also premiered Steve Bannon's movie Claws of the Red Dragon, an anti-Chinese propaganda film. Uh, they premiered it last week. You can watch it for free on YouTube right now on NTDT. Does... um. Epic Times syndicate that channel? They don't syndicate it, but they all cover the same people mm -hmm. from that think tank, the Committee on the Present Danger China, and all the same topics. And they're both right. constantly calling it a CCP virus. That's the hashtag they're trying to get trending, the CCP virus. 
Um, and I don't know if they've quite been effective on getting it trending, but all the people I talked about in, in those two-part podcasts I put out use the same terminology, CCP virus. I don't want to go on too, too long about this, but I feel like we have to talk about Bernie suspending his campaign and Biden being the nominee. We never did talk about Tulsi dropping out and endorsing Biden. I think that we should just really, really quickly just give first thoughts on that because we were, you know, vindicated (laughs) and we were also attacked so viciously Mm -hmm. for daring to criticize her. So I didn't know if you had any thoughts about her dropping out endorsing Biden while Bernie was still in the race. I was frankly really surprised that she did that. Um, But then again, looking back on it, it's kind of who she was the whole time. So what did you think about it when it happened? And how do you feel now about your, you know, stream of critiques against her throughout her candidacy? No, I mean, I feel totally vindicated. Um, And I think most of the perceptive people out there, the smart people, um, the people who weren't who hadn't already dug themselves in too deep of a hole, you know, doubling down their support for her. A lot of those people realized immediately when she did that, that, you know, that was a deal breaker for them and that she was phony to them. Um, I saw a lot of people expressing that and say, in fact, the majority of people were. Um, the only holdouts are like the really, really hardcore sycophants. And, I, and I, you know, I, even though I've called it a cult before, I think a lot of people who were into her really liked what she represented, but they weren't necessarily like cult members or like full on loyalists. And I think a lot of those people realized how phony she was for doing that. And that, you know, that's vindication alone. So I think that, you know, sometimes you just gotta, if you're saying things, going for the jugular on things that you really hold as very strong principles, like believing that anti-war needs to include these several key planks, including being anti the war on terror, and that without it, it's phony, you're, you know, you're going to make people angry with that, especially if she's, you know, getting a lot of popularity and is very viral and also pushing the war on terror. It was, uh, it was weird at times to be getting the pushback I was getting. Um, but at the same time, like I knew that eventually I would be vindicated. There's just too much weighing against her for frankly being phony and having a fraudulent sort of anti-war position that she brought into this general this uh, presidential primary and i think there's plenty of evidence out there spanning back you know as recently as four years ago that shows that something is very off you know she has rebranded herself as being this anti-war candidate and i think that it's very revealing actually that she never really addressed the pro- really strong pro-zionism stuff she never really fully addressed the torture comments she made These things that she never addressed, to me, I just saw them as these wide gaping holes that needed to be really addressed or, you know, she was a sinking ship no matter what she did. Even if she continued to grow in popularity, I feel like those were Achilles heels in her campaign because they stood in such strong contradiction to what she claimed to stand for. Even her Ukraine vote to send $300 million of weapons to Ukraine. She's never explained why she was for that, but then now she's against it. You know, a lot of these things are just, we're just supposed to accept that she's just really strong on these issues now with no explanation. And I can't accept that. I need someone who has a tried and true record, and she frankly doesn't. Not even close. In fact, she's leaned into things that I would describe as neoconservative that really turned me off about torture, about Islam, about terrorism. I just can't accept. But sadly, I think it did reveal an ugly side of the so-called anti-war movement 
that really is willing to lower the bar and accept things like pro-war on terror rhetoric that mirrors the Bush administration. They're willing to accept that. And that's a glaring problem in the movement, I think, that needs to be addressed moving forward. Unfortunately, you had a lot of people filling in the blanks for her and excuse the policy positions that were never explained on her behalf. And that's what I felt like was probably one of the most frustrating things is that it didn't matter that she never elucidated why she came to this conclusion of being this anti-regime change candidate after supporting torture, talking about how she was a hawk on the war on terror. It was just really weird to see people bending over backwards, making so many leaps and bounds to explain away these glaring omissions in her track record and in her current policy positions. And that was always greatly disturbing. It was always greatly disturbing how personal the attacks were. Me, you, and Mike were were just very jealous. That's where it all came from, Robbie. I was just really jealous of Tulsi for getting attention. I just feel like that's a weird misogynist thing to even say. Like, if a woman criticizes another woman, she must be jealous. Oh, my God. It's like, it's just so such a sad, ultimately very pathetic example of how they couldn't actually face the actual arguments we were specifically making and had to like create these like sort of strafe attacks against us to try to, you know, thinking it would get rid of us. And what's weird about it, it, what's weird about it is like, why was it so personal? It's like, I don't give a fuck if you criticize Bernie Sanders. I supported him for president for reasons that I've explained. And we were the only ones really daring to criticize her. And it was such a personal affront to people who were sycophantically, cultishly, slavishly behind her. But what was so weird about it is that people were just like so offended personally. They were personally upset. And I never understood that because this is a person running for president and why are yeah. you getting so personal about it? Why are you so offended to your core? You don't know these people. These people are strangers to you. And I know a lot of people did know her because she reached out. She had this weird That's what I was gonna say. underground effort where she was actually facilitating close relationships with a lot of these so-called alternative media figures. And that was a very smart move tactically from her oh, campaign. God. Brilliant move because it makes you feel like you know her. Yeah. You know, Ron Paul, he only really went on like the Alex Jones show. That was like the closest he got to like the alternative media circuit. But Tulsi went on like many, many of these alternative media shows and sought them out specifically because she knew how important that was. And it really helped, you know, make people feel like she was very approachable, um, very down to earth, very much a people person. Um, And I think it also made her beyond criticism for a lot of people. And made a lot of those shows in a, you know, place them in a predicament where they felt like they were in a close relationship with her. And then at that point, they didn't want to like hurt their friend or offend their friend. This is exactly how DC operates. That's why it was so funny to see this play out in the alternative media circuits is this is how access and kind of the sycophantic media coverage works with all these politicians. And that's why you see kind of the lack of coverage on Biden. Being vindicated here means a lot. But to your point, like the most sycophantic defenders will never even criticize her for for endorsing Joe Biden, you know, and completely going opposed to her entire regime change war narrative, even though Joe Biden was a lead architect of the Iraq war going out there. He was leading the Democratic effort. He told George Bush he would give him a peace prize if he invaded quickly and he would lobby for his second term. I mean, he is a warmonger. 
Like he is, he's a quintessential regime change advocate. And so it was so weird. It was so, so weird. She didn't have to endorse anyone. I think the fact that she endorsed Biden immediately after she dropped out, it's just so odd. Yeah, she didn't have to endorse anyone. Bernie was in the race for at least a month, it seemed like, yeah. after that. Um, and the fact that she acts like she's someone who does things so much out of principle and that people buy into that, like her present vote yep. for impeachment, it just makes that all just seem totally fucking phony. Because out of principle, you should have at least waited, you know, even if you didn't want to endorse Bernie, which, fine, whatever personally happened between the campaigns, if you want to buy into that narrative, whatever. If she didn't want to endorse anyone, that seemed like that would have been the more principled move. And then she just followed through on her obligation eventually to endorse the nominee, just like Bernie's probably going to do. But the but yeah, the whole thing was just performatively so odd. And then the way that she explained it, the only time she really explained it was on the Jimmy Dore show, was also so odd and so robotic and so cold and seemed like she was really throwing all of her supporters in her own movement that she claimed to you know, be so invested in under the bus. Well, that, and that's, that single interview. That's how it came to a head. Absolutely horrifying. First, she did like a enthusiastic endorsement, enthusiastic, where she said she loves Joe Biden's family. She worked with his son, Hunter, and she really, really appreciates and respects Joe Biden. And she knows that he's going to just be a great leader and blah, 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 blah. It was like really, really fawning, right? Then she goes on the Jimmy Dore show. And I think this video exposed her the most out of everything that I've ever seen her, as you said, calculated, cold, robotic, laid it all out. Like her true beliefs finally were laid bare. Jimmy was asking relatively hard questions about the military. Why should people join? And she really just laid it out. She said that people are heroic for joining the military, that we absolutely need to be engaged in several wars abroad for the war on terror purposes. And she did not think her supporters, who Jimmy probably rallied the most support for her out of any person that I know, and she did not once say, Jimmy, thank you so much for everything that you've done for me. Thank your supporters so much for everything they did for me. Not one ounce of gratitude, not one ounce of fucking gratitude for the millions of people who loved Tulsi Gabbard, who believed in Tulsi Gabbard, and also, not really a good explanation of why she endorsed Joe Biden. She just kept saying, like, yeah, I Terrible. understand politics. I understand, I understand how politics works, Robbie. I'm a realist. It was a non-explanation. Non-explanation, just like her non-explanation of why she said only five years ago that she was conflicted about torture and mentioned a ticking time bomb scenario out of a fascist uh, neocon cartoon scenario. So th this is just a reoccurring issue with her. And I think that interview, if you're still... A believer in her after watching that interview i just think you bought into the cult too much you you, you doubled down too hard uh, that video should have revealed to you that something was very very off very off and something is very phony either that or she decided to flip on a dime and throw her entire this entire anti-war movement constituency she built up under the bus like overnight and that's what it, either one. That's either what it she hates her own like. supporters and doesn't care about betraying them all on a whim, or the whole thing is totally phony. That's or what both. it almost I mean, felt it like could be to a mixture. Me. It felt like she was yeah. just like, you know, I tried to use you guys. I tried to get to this place, and now I didn't. And you guys are just not useful to me anymore. Like, yeah, I don't have any. It use was kind for of you. a fuck you, dude. It almost kind of seemed like 
she was there was almost sort of like a defensive energy in her in her that was it that was almost like an entitlement like i should i don't have to explain myself yeah. Yeah. like there was kind of a fuck y'all energy there yep where it was like i just do what i fucking want dude yep and i mean was, I, I i'm sorry that's what i felt when watching that shit yeah it, there was some sort of clear contempt underlying oh, yeah, her dude. answers and you could tell jimmy was frustrated and it was very frustrating to watch that's why i was so sad when she endorsed joe biden to have a lot of people come out and just again anyone who dared to say oh my god tulsi gabbard endorsed joe biden that's so weird and so contrary to everything that she promotes people are just like well bernie's gonna fucking do it too you loser you fucking dumbass Bernie's going to do it too. What do you got to say about yeah. that? It's like, well, it's like you're wait, totally dodging what? the argument. First of all, it's like, wait, it's again, what? it's just pathetic because it's like, yeah, we are going to criticize Bernie <laughs> for, for endorsing Biden. We know he's going to do it, but that's different than what Tulsi did when Bernie was still in the race, like immediately endorsing Biden when she dropped out. That's the craziest shit ever, dude. If you're in denial about that, you really need to wake the fuck up. You can talk about Bernie all you want. It doesn't matter. It's like trying to talk about Hillary as a defense of Trump. Like if Trump's doing yep. something bad, like yep. bringing up Hillary, it doesn't fucking matter. It was so sad to see, Robbie. It, it was so sad to see because it was almost like a psychotic break. I was just like, dude, yeah. like what is happening? Like yeah. what is actually happening here? And I still want to put out my, um, you know, I'm, I'm, Still putting out this uh, open invitation for anyone <laughs> who wants to have me on their podcast uh, to to explain how I was right about Tulsi the whole time. And uh, I just got incessantly attacked for it and how I'm completely vindicated now and I'd be happy to debate anyone. I'd especially be happy to debate anyone who still thinks Tulsi is good. But Robbie, and who, like, she had on. to leave to join the National Guard because she's a hero. Don't, didn't you understand that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I want Tulsi that? being in control of the checkpoint in my quarantine zone. But what was what weird a is that fucking she hero, dude. But, well, what was weird is that she wasn't called for the National Guard service. Oh, also. oh, that wasn't true. No, shocker. Yeah, and the fact that she never actually said, "I'm being called for National Guard duty. I have to leave the race." It was just people saying that for her, and it's like, why are you doing yeah. this? Like, seriously, why are you doing this? Yeah, the whole thing is a nightmare, dude. It just really revealed a lot of dumbness. It was you know, sad. I don't know. It was sad. It, it was, was really sad. sad because Ron yeah. Paul, you mentioned Ron Paul, and I think that he's really someone, disagree or not, with his radical libertarianism and horrible economic policies. He was anti, he is anti-empire. He talked about shutting down all the military bases around the world, bringing all the troops home. Whatever yeah. was driving that, it was so much more pushing the Overton window. It pushed the debate so far to the anti-empire, like extreme anti-US militarism direction that like it, Tulsi was just a joke in comparison. So that's why it was just so weird to see so many people buy into it when we have lived through that iteration where we're like, oh my God, Ron Paul is saying like shit that no one has said before, you know, like going way farther than anyone else. So it was just so weird. It's like such a vanilla, bland regurgitation of minuscule things that Ron Paul did over 10 years ago. Well, I think it's a, it's sort of a watered down sort of populist form of mm -hmm. politics that she's trying to do. And I think that's part of the appeal of what Steve Bannon saw in her, is that she managed to bridge things from the left and the right together to form this sort of populist, watered-down, anti-war sentiment. 
And you can't forget that Trump also rode into office partly on going against the Iraq war and the Bush legacy in this sort of populist way. I mean, that was, you know, and he didn't really mean it. It was just rhetoric, but it was smart rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's get into Bernie suspending his campaign and being stuck with Joe Biden and where we go from here to wrap up. So Robbie, half or almost half of the states haven't even voted yet. You know, you got to love American democracy and the Electoral College. But here we are with Joe Biden as our official Democratic nominee. So who are you going to choose in November, Robbie? The rich, old, perverted, alleged rapist Republican losing his mental faculties? Or are you going to choose Donald Trump? Because that's what we're stuck with, baby. We're stuck with someone even worse than Hillary Clinton. After being told the future is female, um, after the establishment threw every establishment candidate under the sun to try to dilute Bernie's message. They were all echoing Bernie's messages. Then we all saw what happened on Super Tuesday, the consolidation of the centrist vote, the power of the Democratic Party machine getting out to crush Bernie one last shot. It's been like a crescendo of just crazy shit that's happened since Bernie was taking all those first states. And and you really saw the power, the power of the establishment come together to stamp him out. You know, I thought it was really important for Bernie to stay in. Even though he had no path to victory, I thought just as a symbolic gesture at this point, during a global pandemic, I guess I was hoping for a miracle in terms of his domestic policies, the health care, the sick leave, all of these things, right? Employment, unemployment benefits. It makes you much more relevant as a player in the game if you are still like a candidate, even if you have no viability in terms of the path to victory, blah, blah, blah. So I was hugely disappointed that Bernie dropped out in the midst of this while Joe Biden, you know, the Me, the Me Too thing from Tara Reid, while we're, you know, <laughs> expecting 200,000 people to die, while his policies just seem urgent and relevant and needed and are being talked about by everyone, um, I was really sad. I thought, wow, you just lost all your leverage, man. You just lost it all. And Biden has already said he would never support Medicare for all. And he has total contempt for millennials who were supporting Bernie, who, who turned out in droves in the tens of millions. So, Robbie, I wanted to ask you, you know, Bernie had the highest approval rating of any U.S. senator, national name recognition, top grassroots donor volunteer base. And it was essentially a beast. Like his campaign efforts were unbelievable, like crushingly so. Why do you think Bernie lost so much traction after South Carolina? And were you surprised at the downfall that happened so quickly after the establishment consolidated their efforts and kicked into gear to line up behind Biden? No, I mean, I think that the coalescing, however that organized effort took place to sort of sabotage him in in some of those primaries, um, I wasn't surprised to see that. I think we already knew that he had to overwin um, but I think what's probably surprised me the most and what was most frustrating to me at a certain point is I legitimately felt that Bernie was actually not in it to win it at a certain point. I did not feel that he was invested in the race to the level that he had been in the 2016 election. It just seemed like he had lost his mojo. And I don't even mean his energy. It just didn't seem like he was delivering really you know, the type of attacks you would like to see Bernie deliver on his opponents. And even at some of the debates when he had a chance to do a knockout punch, he would back off. And, you know, holding Joe Biden's hand, I think we already talked about this and saying, like, he's a great guy. 
Joe Biden's a friend of mine. I mean, these kind of things were just, I, I, if I was out there canvassing for Bernie, I would probably be, feel very betrayed. I would be, I would be very, very upset. And I didn't just did not understand why he did not seem to be fighting for very hard, as hard as his own supporters were and the people out there volunteering for him were, because I could see the passion of those people and the activities they were doing, like more so than, you know, any, any campaign I can remember in recent memory. It's just very sad for me to watch. Do you think that was pretty much the deciding factor? And like, what do you think it was that made him lose so much steam? Because he won the first couple of states. I think that it could have had to do with that. Uh, honestly, I think that he did appear weak. He did not appear strong. And as, as basic and cartoonish as that is, I think that that's really important. And I feel like he even capitulated a few times on, on certain things that he said. And also he was working against the press, constantly trying to undermine him at every turn. So like I was saying before, he had to, already had to overwin. So I think the fact that maybe he wasn't as invested in it and wasn't going as aggressively, it was like you, you kind of, you almost, without that, you can't overwin. So I don't know. I, I do think it probably really did hurt him. I mean, even that last debate, you know, when people were still in a panic state, I was still in a really panic state during that social distancing debate that they had together without an audience. I don't even know if we talked about this yet. It just seemed like Bernie missed several key opportunities to really take advantage of that situation and generate powerful headlines for what his movement was trying to achieve. Not saying to exploit the crisis to push through his agenda, but to kind of just explain like this is exactly what we would have needed to not be in this terrible predicament we're in now and really drive that home in like a really specific way. He, and he, did, he even still kept calling Trump like a like a racist and a misogynist and stuff. And it's like, go after Trump on the specifics of how he's fucked his situation up. I'm still frustrated even talking about it now, like thinking back to it. I know. I know. I mean, I honestly could not watch that last debate. According to many campaign staffers, even in an interview with Politico recently, they said, quote, Sanders' unwillingness to go for Biden's jugular is just one of the decisions campaign aides are still wrestling with since he exited. Oh, I saw that. Wait, was that the Politico? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of things, obviously. He didn't make the argument enough that Biden being the quote unquote safe centrist choice is what loses, right? Gore, Kerry, Hillary, all these people pave the way for like rabid right wing takeovers of our electoral process. And that's what happens when we go with like a safe centrist candidate. We always lose. Yeah. So Bernie, even though he was painted as this radical populist, like that's what that was the chance we needed to take. And he kind of bent over backwards to say, like, you know, Biden is a good guy and Biden's my friend and and um, and never really talked about why he actually had a much bigger chance of beating Trump than Biden. He would never compare the two. He would just say, I'm beating Trump in national polls. I think people didn't exactly, really yeah. that didn't really resonate with people because national no. polls don't really matter, actually. Like, it's all about how are you going to do with working class voters and like rural areas and all these like Southern states too, which I guess you could argue Biden was going to do better. But that's the thing is that he actually did better in these states when he was just versus Hillary Clinton, when it was just the stark contrast between a centrist candidate and like a populist yeah. candidate. And that's, I think the establishment learned from 2016. They knew that they had to throw 
everything to dilute Bernie's message, throw a dozen or more candidates in the race to just make it completely muddied. And then, of course, the Warren factor. I mean, we can't forget the Warren factor audaciously, offensively staying in the race beyond Super Tuesday. The fact that Yang dropped out and endorsed Biden because he's a shill. The fact that Tom Steyer, who was basically an echo of Bernie, whose main issue was climate change, didn't endorse Bernie either. And so you had the centrists dropping out. Buttigieg was winning. Biden was abysmally losing and all of them dropping out to endorse Biden in lockstep. And then none of the progressives, quote unquote, the anti-establishment candidates doing the same for Bernie. It was like a one-two knockout punch. So would it have made a difference to destroy Biden in in the primary? I absolutely think it would have in the sense of let's just talk about Medicare for all because Biden said that he would veto it. All of these states that Bernie lost still won in terms of like popularity for Medicare for all. Like the majority of people polled in the states that even Bernie lost by sometimes double digits, by the way, still said they wanted Medicare for all and they want to abolish private insurance. And a lot of this happened like when the when the pandemic was already a thing. And what does that show you? That shows you that the case wasn't made enough for how Biden would not give you health care. He could have berated him over and over and over again about the Medicare for all veto. Um, but I, I don't know how much of an effect that would have had given the strength of the Democratic Party machine, all the troops getting in line to elect Biden. I mean... It's it's tough to say. It's tough to say when that machine kicks into gear and you have everyone kind of churned out. The ground game didn't matter at the end of the day. Bernie had an undeniably strong ground game. He had millions and millions of volunteers. He had an army, a legion of people knocking on doors, canvassing, calling. Biden did not have any of that. He was like a ghost. Yeah. He was like the, a corpse of Weekend at Bernie's. He barely even had campaign offices functioning. His one campaign office in California was like boarded up. <laughs> and he still got almost as many delegates as Bernie in California, even though California went for Bernie. Um, it shows you how fucked up the system is when Biden can actually walk away with almost as many delegates after doing nothing. In fact, Biden's official campaign strategy was literally like not campaigning like not doing interviews because of all his infamous gaffes, you know, like they didn't want us to see him um, because he was so horrible on TV. And so he was just absent, but none of that really hurt him in the end. Yeah. None of that really hurt him in the end. All this TV appearances since have been super weird, super awkward. Um, He stumbles constantly. He keeps pausing. It's really weird. And I think that the focus on the Iraq war and social security was good. It was like the social security thing, I think, was too little too late. Like the ad should have been targeted because Biden's voting base was primarily older people. It should have been hammered much more and put in these ads all over these states that like Biden will cut your social security. That wasn't done. I mean, there's so many things that we can say. Um, people always say, oh, why don't you criticize Bernie on his war votes? I mean, yeah, that that's the thing. Bernie kind of focused a lot on the Iraq war vote in 2003 without ever explaining or apologizing for charting the path for the invasion of Iraq throughout the 90s. You know, I mean, voting for U.S. sanctions, the ones that infamously killed 500,000 babies from dysentery. And also 
what Joe Biden and Bernie both voted for, which is in 1998 when Bill Clinton signed into law a bill called the Iraq Liberation Act that essentially was truly the start of what inevitably happened in 2003. Bernie rightly made clear that his no vote on the Iraq war was a major point of contention with him and Biden, but he never atoned for the horrible past and laying the groundwork for the war, like he rightly apologized for his vote for the Afghanistan war, and which, of course, vindicated Barbara Lee. That was a really strong moment, but like he didn't go far enough. I think at the end of the day, all of those factors played a big role. The older generation, the Biden voters we're just convinced by corporate media. I mean, like it or not, these people get their news from from corporate media, CNN, MSNBC, and they were convinced that Bernie was unelectable because of the democratic socialism thing, even though he's not a socialist, right? He kept using the term instead of saying, I'm a social Democrat like FDR. I'm going to put in place common sense policies that FDR employed 100 years ago. That case was never made. That case was never made. So people kept taking yeah. away that the, these were radical, crazy policies that how could they ever work in our society when they did, when they were, in fact, in place 100 years ago? Um, Biden enjoyed nearly $72 million in almost completely positive media coverage in the days between South Carolina and Super Tuesday. So Twitter's a bubble. This is not the reality of the country. It's very clear, just like the Corbyn loss in Britain, that we do not have an accurate reflection on how the vast majority of Americans fall politically and what they think and what kind of news they're engaged in. And I think the vast majority of people are grossly misinformed. It's really, really hard to kind of wrap your mind around how you can be this ignorant of what's going on after Trump has been off been in office for four years, after the Hillary thing, you know, after this just keeps happening over and over again. It's just sad to see again that we're not only going through a repeat in slow motion, right? The train is careening off a cliff and there's nothing we can do to stop it. But all these people are just already shaming and and blaming the left, of course, like they do every time. And the reality is that Biden's never going to concede to the left. He's a centrist Republican. He's never going to move one inch to the left. He has open contempt for leftists. He already said that like his big, broad concession is moving the Medicare age from 65 to 60. Like what a slap in the fucking face during a global pandemic. During Jesus a global Christ. pandemic. That's what he's doing. So what does this all show us about electoral politics? What does this all show us about the desire to throw all of your political energy behind them? Well, I think it really shows you the true limitations of electing progressives in a right-wing kleptocracy. All of these people, like the insurgents, like AOC, Elon Omar, Rashida, these people are complete aberrations. They are three people in a sea of hundreds of congressmen who are extremely right-wing. They can only do so much. And really, to a certain extent, it's almost, it's almost just added legitimacy to this notion that we can do this, that we can have this progressive insurgency in Congress, and that we can elect someone like Bernie. And let's just say Bernie was elected. What would he have been able to do, really? Like, he could have taken a bunch of executive sweeping orders, right, like, like Trump did, but he would have been blocked every way from hundreds of people within his own party that hated him, that hated all of the policies he was proposing, it would have been a shit show because our country is so far gone. There is no hope from within. There is no hope from this right-wing 
corporatocracy, this oligarchic shithole. And um, it's ruled by thieves and it's ruled by the rich. And it's so entrenched, they will stop at nothing to destroy you. The older generation of Biden voters had upward mobility. They had some sort of semblance of the American dream. You know, everyone under 45 who was voting for Bernie has a completely different worldview based on what they've grown up experiencing. They have a different life experience. They're saddled with debt. They've seen the corporate takeover, the neoliberal takeover of every fucking industry. They've seen the police killings. They've seen the never-ending war on terror, the lack of affordable housing, the lack of employment opportunities. And that's why they reject Joe Biden so much. But Joe Biden voters don't really grasp the reality that we're faced with and the cards that we've been dealt and what our future looks like. The strong enthusiasm for Joe Biden among his supporters, 24%. The lowest on record for a Democratic presidential candidate in 20 years. <laughs> That's great. That's where we're going. Yeah, I, I, I still believe that on some level, the DNC establishment has had private conversations behind the scenes that they find, they think that Trump is just simply not beatable and that... Uh, they're not even going to really try and they're just going to take the hit and just wait for things to reset once a new Republican has to get in there to, to win a presidential election. And they would rather Trump win than let Bernie take the nomination. Just a sick joke. What do you think about the Tara Reid uh, damning allegation that came out that accused Joe Biden of like rape? Well, I'm not surprised about it at all. I, I don't really think much about it other than it's he does seem like he's a rapey creep. I don't think he just has bad boundaries in terms of like being touchy feely with people in a non-sexual way. I think he's obviously exhibits rapey behavior and I totally believe it. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. It's funny how it's being ignored and weaponized by like me too advocates like Alyssa Milano. Um, you have oh, yeah. corporate media outlets like New York times, like basically saying there's no pattern of, this is actually hilarious. They did an article about it after everyone's been ignoring it, right? Except alternative media and progressive media. The New York times finally covered it. Half of the articles kind of telling her story in an accurate way. And then half of it's basically just saying like, there's no corroborating evidence that Joe Biden has a pattern of sexual abuse. And then it says, except hugs, kisses, and touching women that previously said made them uncomfortable. And it's like, wait, so that is a pattern of sexual misconduct. <laughs> like, And New York Times was the one who broke that article a while back about like the seven people who came forward months ago that accused Joe Biden of, of sexual misconduct in this way, you know, inappropriate touching and kissing and, and harassing comments and all of that. So that's why it was just so funny. It's like, damn, you guys are so transparent. And all these people who pretend to care about me too, it's like only when it suits them, you know, only when it suits them. It's gross. It's gross. Cause I totally believe Tara Reid. I mean, her story is very believable. Just listen to the Katie Halper interview where she, I don't want to say what happened, but it's pretty gross. And it really sounds oh, yeah. like something Joe Biden would do. Yeah, it's it's weird, almost like a humiliating, like kind of rape, rapey thing that he does. Not that there are forms of rape that aren't humiliating, but it's particularly seems almost like he did it out of like an ego trip. It wasn't even like done for his own sexual gratification. The way, they, the way she described it, it's very odd. Again, he just seems like a, a creep. I don't know. I, he's, there's no chance he's going to win. So um, that we're in for another four years of Trump. 
So buckle up, everybody. But Robbie, it all comes down to SCOTUS, just like it does every time, right? People can't even make the case for Biden anymore because they know how awful he is. Yeah, exactly. And so now, now it's, it's just, just down to the Ruth Supreme Peter Court, Pittsburgh, baby. Yeah. It's down of to the course. Supreme Court. So it is a real possibility that things get really dark really fast with just her being replaced by like a far right judge. But that doesn't mean that Joe Biden's going to replace, you know, what did Obama do? Didn't Obama put on a Republican? Well, no, that's what's so that's what's so funny about it is that people make this case for the Supreme Court every time. It's like they put a gun to your head. And I remember this happening during Kerry, too. It's so manipulative and such blackmail. And they're just like, so you so it all comes down to Roe v. Wade, right? Roe v. Wade on the Supreme Court. What happened with with Obama? He tried to appoint a SCOTUS nominee who was actually relatively right wing just to capitulate and appease the establishment conservatives and Mitch McConnell. And he got blocked, bro. Because even when the Democrats go out of their way to please the Republicans, they will be blocked. What is what yeah. is there to say that the same thing won't happen to Joe Biden? Let's say Ruth Hilarious. Bader Ginsburg does bow out. Let's just say Biden wins the nomination and Biden tries to appoint a nominee. What, what's to say that Mitch McConnell is not going to block him? Nothing happened. Nothing happened when Obama was blocked from appointing someone to the Supreme Court. That was literally the entire explanation of why we should get behind Obama. And he couldn't even do that. And Joe Biden voted to confirm Scalia. He's anti-Roe v. Wade. You have Joe Biden on record from decades ago saying Roe v. Wade went too far. But we're supposed to vote for Joe Biden. Suck it up. Vote for Joe Biden because we want to preserve Roe v. Wade on the Supreme Court. It's yeah, unbelievable it's, it's blackmail, such fake dude. Bullshit. Yeah, I'm convinced at this point that the DNC wants to just take the hit and lose this election. So it doesn't matter at all if you ha- you know vote lesser two evils. It matters not at all. Don't feel any pressure at all. Fuck that shit. Just vote who you want to vote for. Vote for a third party. Vote for your heart. I don't. I, it's just the dumbest shit ever. Yeah, Joe Biden's a horrible person, and I'm not saying that he's worse than Trump. Pick your poison. They're both terrible. Um, if this all comes out of the Supreme Court, that's that's your prerogative if you want to vote that way. But don't act like other people are bad people for not wanting to vote for a war criminal fucking idiot like Joe Biden. All these holier-than-thou rich liberals and establishment Democrats who are lecturing and vote-shaming Bernie supporters, who will always inevitably blame the left for their loss no matter what, they're not going to replicate the voter turnout or volunteer base to actually get out the vote for Biden. They're not going to put in the effort that Bernie supporters did, yet they want burners to do that for them, to defeat Trump. Um, Trump is going to win. He's already making videos about Joe Biden's dementia. He's already been tweeting hella good things about Bernie's loss, right? Um, That Bernie would never dare to say things like this. He will absolutely crush Joe Biden in the general election. And I shudder to think what Trump is going to do with his second term. It could get very, very ugly. That should not define who you're going to vote for in November. Do not waste your vote on Joe Biden. Every time that you vote and give a blank check to the Democratic Party, they will abuse you. They will blame you, right? No matter what, they will never capitulate to any of your demands and it's just giving a blank check to all of their right-wing policies. And it just continues to push the country more to the right every single election cycle. Um, we need to put all of our energy instead, in, instead of into electoral politics every two to four years, we need to put it into an Occupy-style agitation, throwing our bodies into the gears of the machine, 
nationwide general strikes, shutting down business as usual, supporting workers on the front lines, renters who are getting hit the hardest from the devastation that is coming economically. It is time to organize outside of the system now. In fact, it's never been more urgent to lead the millions of young people who reject the status quo to organize outside the two-party system, outside of electoral politics, into the streets to fight and mobilize for the policies we truly deserve. And that means resurrecting massive labor and anti-war struggles and socialist campaigns. COVID has completely exposed the failures of capitalism, and there's really no arguing that anymore. It is not sustainable. And that's why I'm proud to announce I'm going to vote for Gloria Lariva and Leonard Peltier, a political prisoner, Native American, who's running as her vice presidential candidate. I'm going to link on the timeline not only a guide that I'm talking about about the general strike demands, but also a PSL, Party for Socialism and Liberation Forum, of socialist leaders just talking about where we go from here, where the Bernie movement can go and generate this kind of movement that we're talking about. Uh, It's very, very interesting, very enlightening. And I just want to urge people to not fall into a pit of despair, guilt, or being shamed into thinking that they need to capitulate into this two-party hell. Uh, We've been living long enough on the earth and politically engaged long enough where we know the trappings and the emotional blackmail um, that happens every election cycle. And I'm just not going to do it again, Robbie. I, I, I bought into the hope and optimism through the Bernie campaign for a lot of reasons, primarily because I f- really believe that Bernie um, was a good person because of his 40-year track record. And I also was really enthused by the millions of young people supporting him and getting in the streets and mobilizing that giant volunteer base that I literally have never seen before. It was a completely different thing than the Obama era. I think that we can really utilize that energy shift that energy into something that's a large-scale agitation against the empire and really putting it into workers' rights. And that's what we need to see happen. That's the only hope there is left. I believe in revolution, not reform. There is no reforming this corrupt, broken system. It, it has to be a revolutionary movement that is that is taking these problems by the horns and making demands and not ceding to any of the establishment bullshit. And that's where we have to go from here. So I'm just hoping that emerging out of the horror of this global pandemic, something beautiful can happen. The lotus flower grows out of the mud. And that's all we can hope for. You know, we can hope for something that's really sparked and that we can never go back to sleep again because I don't see how we can possibly accept the status quo after we emerge from this. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. So let's hope so there is some good that comes out of this. And uh, hopefully the worst, you know, is going to be over soon. But um, it's still still hard to say what's going to happen. Um, people are already starting to say that the numbers are looking optimistic. I don't really believe that yet. So I guess time will tell. But yeah, let's hope we come to the other side of this and everything's everything's good. You know, it is going to be really difficult, though, to... We might end up having to talk about like a Great Depression for the next year or so um, if the 30% unemployment rate really stays that way. Um, there's so many different factors to this, so many ripple effects. But yeah, let's hope something positive comes out of it. Stay tuned for the next episode of Media Roots Radio. We're going to do a more lighthearted episode about 
our favorite entertainment that we've been enjoying through the quarantine. And please consider donating to Media Roots Radio if you like the content and you want to see more of it, especially Robbie's hard-hitting exposés digging into the neocon hidden agenda, fomenting war in the midst of the global pandemic. So thanks so much, everyone, for listening. We really hope you like the show. Thanks for listening, everybody. 